Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us today for the Wednesday broadcast. And I want to talk to you about a brand new subject that I've been kind of toying with. And uh, I want to talk to you about the fact that joy is not boring, right? When I spent uh, some time as a youth pastor, I was told that it's a sin to bore teenagers, right? And so you got to make the lesson interesting. You got to grab their attention. You got to do something funny. You got to do something creative so that they won't be bored. Uh, And so many times I think that people think, well, living the Christian life is kind of boring and there's no joy in being a Christian and it's kind of boring. But I want you to know that joy is not boring. So I want to find this uh, answer to this question, how can we be joyful and not boring in uh, Acts chapter 4, okay? So we call the breakup between Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, the calm before the storm, right? Things are really going to go good for the church, and Jesus ascended up into heaven as he promised he was going to send the Holy Spirit down. And in Acts 1, 2, and 3, we just see that the church is growing like wildfire. I mean, people are being healed. Great things are going on. I mean, it's just incredible. Everybody's getting along. Uh, They're all sharing everything. Nobody has any needs. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're quiet. Maybe they're they're dumbfounded of what has transpired uh, over the last several months of the church. But things are about to change, right? I tell people all the time, you're always in one of three areas of your life. You're either in the middle of trouble I don't know about you, but I seem like I spent a whole lot of time right there, right smack dab in the middle of trouble, or you're just coming out of trouble. Uh, That's that relief. It's like, oh man, glad that thing's behind me. And I got that bill paid and got that thing taken care of. I got that awkward conversation over with and I'm coming on out of that storm and, and I'm doing much better. Or number three, you are getting ready to go into the storm. Well, that's where we find the early church. They are finding themselves in a position where they are getting ready to go into the storm. It is going to be a fascinating storm. And I can tell you one thing about storms. You may not want to go through them, but they're not boring. That's for sure. And in Acts chapter 5, 41, it says, And the apostles left that meeting full of joy. Why? Oh, because great things happen in the service, right? No, that's not what it says. Uh, They left that meeting full of joy because they were given the honor of suffering disgrace for Jesus. Now, now wait a minute. Are you saying that I can be filled with joy even when I'm suffering and I'm disgraced for Jesus? Absolutely. I need a little more information about this one because I'm having a hard time processing that one, okay? Well, why is this true? Well, number one, it's true because the resurrection of Jesus is penetrating. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 4, verses 2 and 4. It says, they were greatly disturbed. All right, we see a change, right? The scribes, the Pharisees, the the chief priests, up to this point, hadn't said a whole lot about what was happening. I think they figured that this thing was going to die down, right? This new sect of Judaism, it's going to die down, you know. Uh, Jesus, they claim, rose again, but, uh, you know, that's not going to get any traction. Uh, this thing's going to go away with, as a matter of fact, Gamaliel was giving the advice that, hey, if it's not of God, don't worry about it. It's going to fizzle out, right? We've seen these things come up before, and uh, and they start real strong, but then they fizzle out. But they discovered uh, it's not fizzling out. And so they become greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so in their minds, they're thinking, they are still regurgitating that lie, they're still going with that lie that Jesus rose again. And not only are they going with that story, 
but many who heard the message were believing it. So now we got this little sect, and, and they're getting more and more people following them, uh, and in their minds, they're being deceived. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. Now, what causes a reaction in you, whether it be good or bad, is what's going to move you to action. Whatever it is that you're passionate about, whatever you're investing your heart in, your money in, your time in. You see, the penetrating the message of the gospel is, is that we are no longer alienated from God. Alienation was originally a Marxist word. You know, the, the, the Karl Marx meant by being alienated, uh, it was a, a product that he was uh, producing his, his labors. It's like, okay, uh, that's what you're going to do. You're going to be alienated from your family so that you can be a product of labor. And what he produces is, is sold often and over and over again. You'd be alienated from the works of your fruit. In other words, you would work really hard for a product that you would never enjoy. But nowadays, the word alienation has a much broader meaning of being powerless. You know, whenever you feel politically or economically powerless, you feel alienated. As a matter of fact, Paul uses this term in Colossians chapter 1. He says, you know, once you were alienated from God, and you were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy, unblameless, and in his presence. So now this this word influence. We are now being influenced by the presence of God. We're no longer being influenced by something that is within us. That's being self-centered. Now we are influenced by something that came from the outside in. We're no longer having this thirst for power. We're now having this desire to please the one who is raised from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is very penetrating. You know, there's basically two responses that people have to the resurrection. Uh, one is that they're conflicted by it. Uh, they don't really want to have this truth, and, and, and they become greatly disturbed about the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You know, deceivers and deniers, they can't tolerate the confrontation of truth. They are visibly upset over the resurrection. And in the back of the, back of the mind, it says, well, this, is, this whole resurrection thing, it's just a fable. And, and why is it eliciting such a response? You see, when we deny or attempt to deny the truth, it, it creates this conflict. I had a homiletics teacher joke around about preaching a weak point. He says, if you have a weak point, pound the pulpit. If it's a really weak point, pound the pulpit even louder and then repeat that weak point. You see, they were greatly disturbed, and they were unable to find comfort in their lie, and as a result, they had to do something because they were conflicted, conflicted over what happened with this Jesus person. But then there's a second response. The second response is that you're convinced. You're convinced that Jesus did rise again from the grave. Paul says, if this never happened, we'd be of most men miserable. And you think about miserable people. Miserable people can't be devoted to the truth. When you think about being convinced about the resurrection of Christ, being changed because of what Christ has done for you. Now, maybe you're listening and you, 
and you're having a hard time connecting in your relationships and connecting in your church because you are conflicted. When we are conflicted, we are drawn to those who are also conflicted. But when we are convinced, we are also devoted to the truth and connected to those who are also devoted to the truth. You see, you cannot serve God wholeheartedly until he has your wholehearted devotion. Now, when I think about the definition of the church, the church is called the ecclesia, which is a called out group from the world into Christ and into the church. So we're called out of darkness into light, but we must be convinced that we are being called into the light. We're not just taking a walk out of the darkness, we're being called into the light. That's why when we say the church is powerful and is unified, because we're all the same mind. The church revolves around the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and you will not serve God wholeheartedly until he has your wholehearted devotion. You know, I'm totally convinced that Jesus died, that he, that he was buried, that he rose again after three days. Jesus is God. He always has been God, and he always will be God. He died for my sins. He paid fully for my debts. I've been born again by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought me into his family. He has given me his word, the Bible. The Bible is God's love letter to his family, teaching us how to have everlasting life, but also teaching us how to live and get along with each other. Our common bond is Christ. Our communion is based upon the belief in the Bible. Whenever I waver in this conviction, I waver in my relationship with God, and I waver in my conviction to be a servant of my brothers and sisters. I put me on the throne. When the Pharisees and the scribes were looking at the church, they says, man, uh, this thing is unbelievable. They have joy in the midst of persecution. How could they have joy in the midst of persecution? They were convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it was penetrating in their lives. Secondly, they had joy because of the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, there is power. There is power in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, it says, and Jesus is the stone oh, that the builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You see, the name of Jesus is powerful. Sometimes you're going through a hard time. Just cry out the name of Jesus. Uh, There's just something about that name, Jesus. It's power in his name. Mr. Spurgeon once made a parable and he said, there was once a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence. And he ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith, that was his occupation. And so he had to go to work and he had to forge this chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant. And he was ordered to take it and make it twice the length. He brought it again to the tyrant. And again, he was ordered to double it. Back he came when he had obeyed the order. And the tyrant looked at it and then commanded the servants to bind the man hand and foot with the chain he had made and cast him into prison. That is what the devil does with man, Mr. Spurgeon said. He makes them forge their own chain, and then he binds them hand and foot with it, and he casts them into outer darkness. Well, what can break that chain? The name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain, to break every chain. There is power in the name of Jesus. Oh, I want you to know 
The early Christians had so much joy in their lives because they were convinced that the resurrection took place and they were driven by joy because they put their trust in the power of the name of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that they came to the other side of the sea and and the country of the Gazarenes. and, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a a chain. For he had often had been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched those chains right apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and among the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. Oh, what is happening to this poor man? He needed some healing. He needed some being set free, right? When we think about the name of Jesus, he brings about healing. He brings about emotional healing. You see, when you feel chained to a bad attitude or when you feel chained to an unhealthy relationship, I want you to know that God heals that brokenhearted and he buys up our wounds and brings healing. There's emotional healing that is found in the name of Jesus. There is physical healing. You ever feel sick and you you feel chained by that disease or that sickness? Oh, I want you to know that Jesus went up to that boy's father, uh, that boy that had been put in shackles and chains that he kept breaking apart, and he couldn't be set free from that demon that was within him, that unclean spirit that was in him. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Ah, from childhood, he answered. It has often been the case that he would throw himself right into the fire or into the water to kill him. But this guy said, man, if you could have pity on us and help us. And I love how Jesus responded. If I can, if I can help you, it's almost like, are you crazy? Of course I can help you, right? And Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Oh, I want you to know, if you struggle with belief, God will take you right where you are. Oh, I want you to know, there's many times I pray. I said, Lord, I'm not sure you can answer this prayer, but I'm going to pray believing. Would you help my unbelief? Oh, we need some help with our unbelief, don't we? Uh, But the name of Jesus can bring about emotional healing. It can bring about physical healing. It can bring about spiritual healing. Maybe you feel the guilt of chain around your life. You feel trapped by sin. Ah, God's grace is able to set you free. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says that he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And Paul put it this way to the Corinthian believers. He says, but God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So Paul says, I'm going to boast about my weakness because when I'm weak, he is strong. He says, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities for when I am weak, then I am made strong. In other words, in our moments of weakness, that is when Christ wants to infuse the name of Jesus upon us, and by doing so, he brings about spiritual healing. Well, there's something else that these early believers experienced. Not only did they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only did they believe in the name of Jesus that brought about healing, they had a revelation of Jesus that it filled their preaching. Look at Acts 4.8. And Peter, filled with the Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people. There is something about spirit-filled preaching. Oh, you ought to pray for your pastor this weekend. 
As he gives that message, you ought to pray, Lord, would you fill him with, with the Spirit? We don't need to hear a whole lot of nonsense, right? Uh, by the foolishness of preaching shall many repent. Uh, that doesn't mean foolish preaching. Uh, I've heard a few of that. I've, I've had a few foolish sermons myself. Uh, we need Spirit-filled preaching. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-one, it says, Since the wisdom of this world, the world doesn't know, God was pleased with the foolishness of what he was preaching to save those who believe. In other words, God says, you know, the world looks at things and says, wow, we got so much wisdom, we have so much power, we have so much uh, ability to be able to create things, and, and we have all this wisdom. But God says, you know, it's just through the foolishness of preaching that I save those who believe. So many people say, well, I think the day of preaching is, is over. We need to get over preaching the message of salvation. We need to get over preaching the Word of God. We just need to have conversations, right? Oh, no, we need to have some old-fashioned, heaven-sent, spirit-filled preaching where the Word of God is preached uncompromisingly and where the Word of God is proclaimed through the Spirit of God. We see that the early church not only had the revelation of Jesus in their spirit-filled preaching, but they also had boldness, uh, the boldness of Jesus in their prayers because they prayed in Jesus' name. Uh, Let's look down at Acts chapter 4 and verse number 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled men, and they were ordinary Joshmos, right? They were astonished. And they took note. And they said, you know what's different about these guys? They're ordinary guys. They're unschooled guys. But they've been with Jesus. Acts 4.31 says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was, was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly. Oh, are you having trouble standing up for the truth of God's word? Why don't you boldly pray? Say, Lord, give me the courage to share the gospel with somebody today. You know, many days I begin my day with a three-pronged prayer. Prong number one is I pray, Lord, today as I go about my business, would you give me the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody? I don't know where that's going to be or when that's going to be, but sometime in the next uh, in the next 12 hours, would you give me the opportunity to share the gospel? The second prong of my prayer goes like this. Lord, would you open my eyes to see this opportunity that you have placed before me? I don't want to miss it. And so would you reveal to me when you are allowing this person to come into my life so that I can share the gospel with them? So prong number one, Lord, allow me to share the gospel today. Prong number two is, Lord, allow me to see who I'm going to share the gospel with. Prong number three is, Lord, give me the boldness, the Holy Spirit boldness to share the gospel. Help me to to weigh my words carefully so that I don't speak on my behalf, but I speak on the behalf of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. It says, after they prayed, the place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Yeah, there's joy and boldness and confidence that I've got the hand of God upon my my life, and he's going to guide my thoughts. He's going to guide my words. As a matter of fact, Jesus told the disciples, listen, when they arrest you and they bring you before the court of law, don't worry about what you're going to say. God will give you the right words. He'll give you the boldness to say. You don't have to prepare for it. You'll be ready for it. Pray that God gives you that boldness. Well, there's something else that they had that caused them to be so filled with joy. They had significance, the significance of Jesus, and it was provable. 
Listen, whenever God moves and he moves in a miraculous way, there is evidence to prove that he is moving. We see that the church is always growing. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, They were praising God and they were enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, this is amazing when you think about it. Now, when you look at Christianity in America, you may be discouraged and say, well, it seems like we are losing ground. It was 30 years ago that they did a survey and and they said, well, where is America and uh, where are they in their relationship with God? And at that time, 7% of our population say, I have no religious affiliation. If you fast forward another 30 years to where we are today, uh, as recent as the year 2020, They discovered it's no longer 7%, but now it's up to 35% of Americans who say, I have no religion. I'm a nun. I don't have any faith that I associate at all with. So you may get discouraged when you think about that. But when you look at a comprehensive study of more than 200 countries, you find that there are 2.18 billion Christians of all ages around the world, representing a third of the estimated population of the world today. Christians are geographically widespread, so far flung out, in fact, that there is no single continent or region that can have this indispensable claim that they are the center of global Christianity. We used to think it was here in the United States, but we no longer can say that. You know, a century ago, this was not the case. In 1910, about two-thirds of the world's Christians lived in Europe, where the bulk of Christians had been for a thousand years. According to historical estimates by the Center of Study for Global Christianity, today about one-fourth of all Christians live in Europe. A plurality of more than one-third now are living in America, and about one in every four Christians live in Africa. About one in eight is found in Asia and in the Pacific. So we no longer say, well, this is the strong point of Christianity in Europe or, or in America. We discover that the gospel is spread throughout the world. That is the significance of Jesus Christ, that his church is always growing. But there's another proof of Christianity, that his people always persecuted. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 12, it says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Did you know in the last 100 years of history, There have been more Christians who have been killed for their faith than the previous 1,900 years combined. The church is growing like wildfire, but the church is also being persecuted. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith. I think about the Christians in Nigeria and the Christians in China and the Christians in in uh, North Korea and the, and the Christians throughout uh, areas that it's difficult to live up for their faith, being persecuted. But even that is a sign that Jesus is alive and his church is growing. We also see that we can prove the, the significance of Jesus and that his purpose always prevails. In Matthew 16, 18, it says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus didn't say that the gates of hell will not come against it, but they will not prevail against it. That's why the church is so powerful. Listen, if you are are enjoying this broadcast, I want you to know that you will grow by leaps and bounds by being involved in a church. God didn't just intend you to 
to, to just listen to the gospel on, on the radio or on the podcast or on the internet. No, he wants you in the church because upon that church, he will, he will rise up and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you know that, that Satan can prevail against you by yourself? Now, I know we are so much into this, this uh, whole concept that I have a personal relationship with God. And, and yes, you do. Thank God you have a personal relationship with him. But God never meant for you to walk the Christian life by yourself. The enemy can prevail against you if you're by yourself. His goal is to conquer and to divide. And he wants to bring about havoc in your life. Well, there's one last thing I got to share with you. The early church had that passion of Jesus, and it was seen in their people. It says they had one heart and they had one mind. Nobody claimed to have all their possessions their own, but they shared everything. The early church was a sharing church. And because of that great power continued. The disciples continued to testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. There was not one needy person among them. Amazing. They looked out for each other. There was joy in that they looked out for each other. Well, you know, I hope that you are going to be worshiping the Lord in church this weekend. If you don't have a church home, why don't you come on down to Hickory Ridge Community Church at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. We'll make you feel right at home. We have a service at 9 or a service at 1030. And if you need me to pray for you, give me a call at 757-421-7500. Or you can shoot me an email, onehopeforyourheart at gmail.com. Onehopeforyourheart at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast today. God bless you. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.